Hello, and welcome to the first bonus episode for Life with Ed, the podcast. I definitely uh, didn't anticipate having bonus episodes when I started this out, but um, turns out there's a lot more I want to talk about. I had a plan for today's episode, um, but all plans get interrupted or changed, I guess, uh, especially mine. Um, so I was originally going to talk about the history of eating disorders, and I'm still going to, so we'll get there. But first, I need to bring to everyone's attention the Fast Track to Health study. I don't know how many of you have seen um, this study on Twitter, Instagram, uh, just in the news. It's been everywhere the past day or so, um, but it's in Australia, so you may not have seen it. And it's a study that is supposed to look at ways, um, you know, to help children not become obese, I think is the goal. But uh, it's going about it in a very, very dangerous way. And there are uh, many, many health professionals in Australia and the United States and probably all over the world uh, very concerned about it. The idea of the study is to put teenagers 13 to 17 uh, which is a major growth time so this is even more terrifying in a one month um, starvation so no more than 800 calories a day followed by a full year of two or three days a week with only six to seven hundred calories a day that is horrifying uh, that is less than like 35% of the number of calories a child in that age range needs like minimum. And it's also a huge risk for eating disorders. These kids are going to be learning how to count calories and, um, you know, being told to starve themselves. And it's a good thing. It's horrifying. Um, there's a huge risk for these children. These are real people. We don't they're not rats. They're not, you know, guinea pigs. Um, they're real people. And we can't be, you know, putting their life at stake like this uh, for the sake of, of so-called science. Um, the board CEO, the ethics board CEO actually said, and I quote, the risk of children developing an eating disorder, a condition that has the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses is justified because of the potential for the participants to lose weight. So uh, he is essentially saying the chance of death is not as important um, as the fact that they might be in a thinner body. And that is absurd. It's as if, you know, larger bodied people don't have the right to life, which is insane. Um, this needs to stop. I know there's several different petitions going around to to stop this study before it gets started. There just isn't enough education for the parents who are signing their children up to these studies. I don't think they're explaining um, the health risks of eating disorders that could come to the parents. So, so please look around for it. Spread the word. Do what you can to get this study um, to stop. If you want to read a really good article about it, 
There is one in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning. Uh, Today's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. So go check it out and um, please share it. Do what you can. Sign the petition if you find it. So thank you. That's our interruption for the day. Maybe we'll have a, a daily interruption on these bonus episodes. So back to my original plan. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of questions since I started um, my blog series, Life with Ed, about a year ago, and even more since um, the first episode came out, podcast episode, about a month ago, or two weeks, like math, hard. <laughs> so um, about the history of eating disorders, a lot of people have been asking me, you know, when did they start? Are these new illnesses? You know, what, what really is the history? Where did these come from? And um, I didn't know the answer fully. I mean, I know a little bit, but I didn't know fully. So I did some research, a little digging, and I'm going to go through that today. So uh, here we go. <laughs> Before I get started, I just want to say all of my resource notes are going to be in the uh, episode description. So if you want to look at the sources I used and the articles yourself, please go ahead. They're all there. Um, definitely want to thank the Eating Recovery Center for the info they had out and a couple articles from Psychology Today. So the first diagnosis of anorexia nervosa was actually made in 1874 by Sir William Gull. And this was the first time self-starvation was looked at from a medical perspective. It wasn't at all the first time people noticed uh, others starving themselves, but it was the first time it wasn't looked at as like a devotion or holiness or purely a good thing. Uh, Prior to this, so, you know, pre-1874, there were a lot of people, a lot of, you know, monks or nuns who would uh, starve themselves or fast is the the religious word, um, as a devotion to God to get holier. So most notably, um, I think the furthest back, we have a definite record of is St. Catherine of Siena who lived from 1347 to 1380 and she starved herself to get as close to God as possible. She was longing for, you know, perfection in her holiness, in her uh, religiousness. (laughs) Uh, As opposed to today, most people who are are partaking in self-starvation in the disease anorexia or other eating disorders it's more of their the thought is more about bodily perfection but it has the same result and um, I think can spiral in the same way so um, you are so consumed with this thing whether it's holiness or or your body that um, isn't you know real and in terms of help helping you stay alive and isn't healthy um, and you put the health aside and focus on the other thing and end up starving yourself. In 1903, so uh, over 25 years later, Dr. Pierre Janet chronicled bulimic behavior. So they hadn't ever uh, used the word bulimia yet. Um, that wouldn't come until much later. But they were documenting people throwing up, purging, binging, purging, the cycle um, prior prior to the word bulimia nervosa being used. So that's 1903. There's a definite chronicle of bulimic behaviors in several patients, not isolated cases. 
The term bulimia nervosa, however, was first used in 1979 in a clinical paper by Dr. Gerard Russell. Going to have to work on my (laughs) pronunciation for these. Um, Before that, so prior to the 1970s, bulimia and most eating disorders were actually looked at as an endocrine disease instead of a psychiatric um, disease. It was sort of seen like, you know, you're throwing up and you're or you're starving yourself and you're throwing off uh, the chemicals in your body, the ions. And and that does happen. Um, And that's a big reason, you know, for heart failure in eating disorders or um, people blacking out, passing out. But it is not like the root cause. So treating it as an endocrine disease today um, is not not done at all because it's it's not really the root cause doesn't solve the problem. So although these dates seem, you know, pretty recent, uh, we really don't know when eating disorders developed. It's very likely there has always been people who have suffered from eating disorders. Um, They are hiding diseases, so people don't, you know, talk about them and they're not, you know, apparent on your body necessarily. Sometimes they can be, um, especially anorexia you can see, you know, the thinness, the bones, um, possibly uh, hair upon your skin to keep you warmer. But they're not as apparent as, say, like a tumor or something like that, that, you know, everyone in your society would know about. So it's really hard to say, like, this is the start of eating disorders, but it's at least the start of eating disorders becoming um, a medical priority. In 1959, so jumping back a little bit, Dr. Albert Stuckard first um, had the first description of binge eating disorder. So those are the three, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, often called uh, BED, are the three main types of eating disorders, the three that are classified in the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, DSM. I'll check if I got that right. But the DSM, that psychiatrists and psychologists use has three main eating disorder types today. Um, So they were all documented in some way by 1959. In 1973, there was a psychoanalyst, Dr. Hilda Bruch, who released Eating Disorders, Obesity, Anorexia Nervosa, and the Person Within as a book. So this is the first time it was really put out to the public. And that is... um, interesting to me because it coincides with a rise in eating disorders so more and more people are being diagnosed it's becoming apparent um, to the whole society through a lot of you know celebrities or, or different people coming forward saying you know they suffer from from these problems that that these are real illnesses and that they're they're happening more frequently and I don't know as I said, they're hiding disorders. It's hard to know. But uh, it very well could be that, like, the book and, and popularizing what eating disorders were. And, and I think she actually went into pretty significant detail about what people do who have these disorders. Um, could have, you know, sparked some people to start partaking in these activities. I know that's a common trend with suicides. If... Uh, suicide is reported 
there's often a ripple effect. So there's more children or, or teenagers who end up committing suicide after it's heavily reported in the news, which is one reason that suicides aren't reported that often to try to try to prevent that ripple effect. So getting back to the DSM, um, you know, there was no mention of eating disorders as a psychiatric illness in the first edition. The second edition, however, came out in 1980 and anorexia nervosa was added. And bulimia was sort of described underneath it, but it was just a part of anorexia. And same with binge eating. I'd, I'm not sure how much it was described in the first DSM, but it would have just been under um, anorexia. In 1987, when the third DSM was published, uh, bulimia was separated as disease, and binge eating was certainly listed under that as a, you know, people who partake in the binging but not the purging part of bulimia. So 1987, finally have two eating disorders classified in the DSM. And it may seem like kind of trivial. I'm saying, oh, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists finally recognized it, but people knew about it before. Um, it's actually a pretty big deal. So with our healthcare system and the, and the way insurance works, a lot of times if an illness is not classified and you're not be you're not able to have a, a diagnosis a formal diagnosis then you can't get treatment or at least insurance can't pay for treatment it's a big problem today and why there's the classification of eating disorders not otherwise specified ed and os because if someone doesn't perfectly meet the qualifications for say bulimia which I think has you know purging at least three times in a week or, or three times every two weeks something like that if they don't meet that qualification then they can't you know be diagnosed with bulimia and the same with anorexia I think there's a weight requirement like you need to be under 18 for your BMI or 18.5 you need to be officially quote-unquote underweight um to have anorexia and that's very challenging for someone like myself who works with patients with an eating disorder because some do not meet those particular requirements but they have all the behaviors and need help need help before they get there so so it's a big deal to finally get classifications in the dsm and it's even bigger deal today to get them liberalized so in 2013 so that's Quite a long time later and very recently, only I think six years ago, um, the DSM-5 came out and binge eating for the very first time was listed as its own disorder. And that has been huge for people with binge eating disorder. Um, there are now treatment centers. I know Walden Behavioral Care has one in Connecticut specifically for binge eating. And prior to that, you know, someone with binge eating disorder didn't really fit the definition of bulimia. They didn't have the purging behavior, so they might not be diagnosed and they might not be able to get treatment paid for. And there weren't special, you know, inpatient or intensive outpatient clinics for them to go to, to, to get better. So it's a big deal um, six years ago with the DSM-5. So that was a lot <laughs> of history. 
Um, and it definitely in all that time, we have just seen a increase in eating disorders and definitely, you know, more being diagnosed, but more people exhibiting behaviors. And a lot of that has to do with the constant pressure to diet in our society. Um, the official statistics for anorexia are 0.3 to 0.4% of young women and 0.1% of young men. But this is pretty small percentage of the actual number of people who have eating disorders. In a 2010 study that followed 496 adolescent girls from 12 to 20 years of age, uh, it was shown that 5.2% of them had anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or binge um, eating disorder at some point during that time. And if you included all of the eating disorder behaviors that are grouped under EDNOS, it brought that number up to 13.2% of that almost 500 girls. And that is probably far more accurate to how many people truly suffer from disordered eating behaviors. Before we wrap here today, I just wanted to say that um, there is a a fourth type of eating disorder that is very rarely talked about. And um, if you don't work in the medical field and specifically, you know, with with eating disorders, you might not have ever heard of it. It's called ARFID, uh, Avoidant Restrictive Feeding Intake Disorder. And it's most often in children. Um, and many of us could refer to it as like extreme picky eating. It's a food avoidance. Um, the kids often are very sensitive to textures um, more than like a taste. And they end up with a decreased appetite, losing weight because they're really not eating very much. They get stomach pains from that, um, similar to someone with anorexia might, might have. And they have this intense fear of vomiting. And a lot of them, you know, associate certain foods with causing them to vomit. And so they won't eat that food because they could vomit or that food because they could vomit. And that is the worst thing they can imagine. So it is a big problem in a lot of our kids. And it often does turn into anorexia. So someone who has ARFID might then, as they progress into puberty and, and teenage years, start becoming aware of their body and aware that they are smaller and they want to be even smaller um, and worried about gaining weight as they start to grow. So that's a little bit of history about eating disorders. I hope you learned something. Um, I'll be back at some point with another bonus episode, but please tune in on February 25th for our third episode of Life with Ed, the podcast, third official episode. I will have um, a dad who has a daughter in eating disorder treatment. Many of you might know him on Twitter as um, Dad versus Eating Disorder. I'm very excited to have him on, so, so tune back in then. In the meantime, if you are in New Haven on February 23rd, I have an event in person um, at the Woodbridge Running Company at 2 p.m., so please come out. We're going to talk about eating disorders in the running community, share our stories, have some snacks, go for a run, have some fun. <laughs> so come to that. As always, email me, worthyourwhilenutrition at gmail.com, worth, W-E-R-T-H. If you have any questions, check out my website, worthyourwhile.com, and uh, have an awesome 
weekend.